0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ in his mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. This morning's scripture reading comes from Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 42. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather it grew worse. She'd heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch his, even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? Talitha, kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ.
1: Thanks, Kyle. Um, Most of you may know that I am a um, big football fan, but I don't think you need to be a huge football fan to know a name that has um, become... Uh, household one as of the last week, a guy named DeMar Hamlin. Um, if you, I remember, gosh, less than a week ago on Monday night, I was getting ready the next morning to travel back to, uh, tech, uh, from Texas back to Nashville. I was watching Monday night football and uh, with my in-laws and all of a sudden watch a young man make a routine tackle um, on a play. He stands up from the Buffalo Bills, DeMar played for the Buffalo Bills. He stands up and all of a sudden just collapses, just. And uh, as many say in this, and you'll hear um, if you've watched any of the reports, we're so used to people kind of after, you know, that happens, you see a thumbs up, you see uh, a cart going off and then maybe sitting up or, you know, clapping or, or at least raising a hand. None of that happened. In fact, if you notice and if you watch any of the video, you see people coming out. There's a lot of alarm that began to surround him. And what we realize is for the next nine minutes, Damar Hamlin was not even alive. He had a coronary failure. Uh, they were doing CPR on the field. And it was something that really was, uh, man, it makes me teary even thinking about it. I don't even know. I'm not even connected to the guy. And, and I think what's incredible about it is a couple of things. One of the things that came out about is that how every single person, from the people on the field to um, in the booth that they had to cut to, to man, they just they had all this airtime now. I mean, it happened within the first few minutes of the game, and, the, and they had to just sit and talk. They had all this airtime for that game. And so the studio, uh, the, the announcers, everybody, the people on the field, were just trying to m- grapple with what's going on. And as they talked about it, what was incredible is everybody we are so desensitized to the fact somebody gets hit, even something like that, maybe they have a, a concussion, they can get back up or they're helped off the field. This was nothing like that. And no one knew what to do. And all of a sudden, football became nothing. Like legitimately, coaches came together and wisely said, no, 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 we're not playing a game. We're, we're, we're going off the field. And they still, they canceled the game altogether, and other games were moved. I think the two remarkable things from it were, one, was the desire for, and by the way, how he's doing now, he's incredibly, he's doing incredibly well, uh, which is amazing. For someone who had CPR for that long, uh, the way his brain functioned, he's already speaking, uh, you know, the Lord is at work. But the two things that were remarkable about it, one is how it moved from such a routine issue to tragedy and everybody felt completely helpless. You could see it on their faces. You could see it in the studio. No one knew what to say or do. Something that that it's not like a thumbs up. It's this is a reality. We are this kind of breakable. And two was actually how much prayer went into that now i say that not to like say oh prayer you know but that that was the reaction the people in the studio actually stopped to pray the people on the on the ground pray, the coaches they could do nothing and and they were driven to that and i don't say that because it, oh well Prayer is when we're just helpless, and it's easy to kind of dismiss it or maybe when we need it, but I think there's something internal. There's something about that that connects the fact that we really are that needy, and when it comes to healing, when it comes to to us needing and seeing our frailty and the suffering around us, that we really are that finite and limited. And we need someone who is unlimited, who is powerful, to look and reach in and do what we cannot do. And that's actually what's happened. God, by his kindness, his graciousness, has done that. And we're looking at a series, and, and we don't typically do this. We typically take a book or, or a passage um, in terms of, like, unpacking a chapter, and we look at that. Sometimes every now and then, we'll, though, we'll hit a topical thing. And I don't know if you've seen these commercials. They're called He Gets Us. They're on TV, they're on whether it's any show, sporting event or not. And it's all about this certain group that's created this He Gets Us, and it says Jesus, and they're actually building to something at the Super Bowl. It's an interesting group. But we've decided to say, okay, how do we look at this? How does Jesus actually do get us? How do we answer that? And specifically about healing. When you read something that so permeates the Bible and that when we think about Jesus, there was even a, 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 some sort of uh, um, thing, story thing made years ago about Jesus and called the miracle worker. And it really highlighted his healings. But, but why? Why are healings so important? What is it about? And what does healing really have to do with us? Is it real today? Because when we pray, when people stop on a field like that and tragedy is real in your face and someone is, everything else goes out the window. How do we really believe that God is a, the healer, and that healings point to the fact that he not only heals now, but ultimately we will be completely healed? That the suffering we've incurred or will incur is not the end, but is pointing to something further beyond it. So, I want to look at this passage in two ways. We're going to unpack it in two ways. One, I briefly want to talk about healing. Let's just look at healing, the, the biblical uh, view of it, and how, how it really is real and relevant. And, and second, I want to look at these two daughters. I want to look at the passage and unpack the two daughters that are really, you can almost have a, a split screen. Uh, view of this passage because it, it's a happening of a uh, of a story, and then all of a sudden something else happens, and then it finishes. So you kind of have this split screen understanding of these two daughters, as they're called in this story. So we'll look at them. You know, healing in um, the Bible is something that's talked about quite a bit, uh, and it's something that we all long for. And I think there is that bridge there. But but I will say that over the last years since the Enlightenment, um, that healing has been one of those things like, okay, is this some sort of like mythological book? Are these just fun stories that help build hope? Or are these real? Uh, David Brooks, one of my favorite op-ed writers, has written uh, in years past just about the connection of thinking that as we've grown more technological, most people think that religion is uh, waning, that it's losing ground. Uh, we have these phones, we have all sorts of things at our, at our fingertips to be able to, to move ahead in life. And so naturally people think, okay, because we're, we're feeling more limitless, we don't really need religion. But actually if you look across the world, that's actually not the case. In fact, religion is growing in, in, in a lot of areas, in many areas, even if it feels like it may not in our own small circles here. But it is growing in, in great leaps and bounds, David Brooks said. He says, he calls his article, kicking the secularist habit. <laughs> in other words, thinking just because one thing is this way, that we're, we, we're not with need anymore. Because we're gaining so much in this way. And that's what we often think. I mean, even with DeMar Hamlin's story, we're so used to us recovering so quickly. What's our need? But when we're, we come face to face with our limitation we realize that we really are created beings. We can't get around that. The reality in, especially Mark's gospel, he does this one of the best. And if you're here and you haven't read the Bible before or wanting to know, Mark's gospel is really short and great for someone who is really entering into it because he's just like, here's Jesus. (laughs) He doesn't take a whole lot of time. He doesn't fluff the story, his, his gospel is the shortest of them all. And it actually leads by saying, here's what Jesus is about. Who is he? And they, and they ask the question, you can even look at this in, this, in, the, in the, a number of accounts here, as people ask about healing, particularly here. It talks even in Mark's gospel about, and he healed many. But there's this passage that draws out how he actually did it. And they always were looking for someone. And one of the marks of the Messiah, marks of the new kingdom for those who lived in Judaism was, okay, is there going to be some sort of restoration? What does that look like? And as Jesus comes on the scene, people are asking that question about healings, the reality of them. And one of the things that people look at the Bible often, they say, well, the Bible's an old book these people might have been really gullible, maybe they didn't have enough science, then, well, that's actually not true. Specifically, if you look at the Bible historically, even one of the Gospels itself, one of the most complex, complicated, and even written in Greek Gospels, written by Luke, was a doctor who accounted narrative after narrative of healings. In fact, uses, you can see his doctoral language in that. Now, maybe he didn't do the same kind of schools that we have today, but he went to school, he studied, he was a trained historian. Mark and others, and as you even see at the end of this, they knew what was true and what wasn't. Verse 42, and immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement because this doesn't usually happen. This is not a normal thing. And and, and and sure, they may have lived in a different time and age, but they know reality. People don't walk on water. Dead people don't rise up. When somebody's healed, they're incredibly amazed. And the reality of healing is in it. Science is not... Uh, and I I've may have said this a number of times in here, I think I need to layer it over and over because one of the things that's, that's up and coming as we talk about deconstruction, maybe you've heard that word, we're actually doing a seminar of it uh, in a couple weeks uh, at uh, Christ Prez Old Hickory uh, for anyone who would like to go. But deconstruction says, well, you can take it apart in any point. Well, you deconstruct something fur- further enough, you could do that with anything, then you have no basis for, for anything at all. But what we know that science is, and the Bible says this, even books are devoted to it, look at the world, see how it operates. And there are countless verses, passages that are talking about how does the body work? <clears throat> how does creation work? How do we observe it? How do we live in it? How does faith connect to science and is not opposed to it? Because even if you're here and you would say you're you were a scientist or a physician of sorts, Faith is consistently within all of our vocations, including those of medical profession, if not more, because of the belief of, hey, when I do this, then I do that. Science works in the realm of nature and everything of God, what he has created in it for us to understand and know and for us to observe. But the relevance of healings in this is the fact that Jesus doesn't use miracles to coerce faith. The Bible doesn't use healings and these kind of things, supernatural work, to coerce anyone to say, you must believe. And here's how we know that. The religious leaders themselves, the people you would think would say, hey, Jesus, we're going to believe. I mean, (laughs) you showed these things. They actually say, Jesus, if you perform these miracles, we'll believe. And Jesus says, no, I will not. Because even if you see someone, and even says this, Jesus says, even if you saw someone rise from the dead, it does not mean you would believe. It does not warrant faith. See, miracles aren't the suspension of nature. They're actually the restoration of it. And when we see the healings here, and when you read that in the Bible, it's not these powerful, wild stories to get you to go, oh, cool, I want to follow this guy. <laughs> Plenty of people did that, and Jesus constantly said no. Do you know why you're following me? Because I'm not feeding you bread and fish and I'm not restoring you to health or raising people from the dead to show you that I can do cool things, you better watch this. I'm doing them to show you how things ought to be. That there's a restoration of this world and life and of your body and of everything around it. And even these people, notice, the people that were healed in this passage are not walking around right now. The healings were for a purpose. They were an arrow, a direction. These people who were healed from these infirmities actually eventually died. They would see eventual death. And they, like us, will see that as well. So what was the point? To point beyond themselves. If it stops with the healing, you miss the healer. And many of us can go to these passages and read these and be encouraged. But if we stop there, if we look by faith to the healing and what we long for in healings and restoration in our own lives, we could miss it and actually not be fulfilled at all. And yes, we might have certain things about our world and our lives be given to us. Maybe we'll have a better circumstances, a quality of life. But God, Jesus doesn't skip those things. Notice, Jesus doesn't over-spiritualize healing either, as many have done as well. They've swung the other way and said, well, it's not about physical healing, it's about spiritual. No, if that was the case, then Jesus would have said, you're healed. But there are plenty of passages where he even says to the people, your sins are forgiven, but you're also physically healed. So that they might know what Jesus can do, but more so who he is. So when we approach these passages in any of them, when the Bible talks about us praying over and over, it also includes in many of the New Testament contexts for churches that we need to be praying for each other for healing. That it's not just a quip. And I think for many churches and even Christians using the language of, hey, praying for you when people are sick, when there are major tragedies, when things are going on, I guarantee you. And one of the things that DeMar Hamlin, who I know is a Christian, has said on his posts over and over, what I have found very interesting isn't just the thank yous that I've really appreciated. He says, please keep praying for me, don't stop. And the stories I hear about his background and what he knows about himself and what he needs, it goes well beyond getting back onto a football field. Is that where our hearts go? Or do we just kind of want our lives in better place or shape? This is how the community draws together. And that, let's look at these two daughters because their stories are what really encourage us, I think, as a community, as a church, to look to the healer and also to encourage one another. <clears throat> there was an article um, some time ago that was in the Atlantic, and it was called "The Case for Thoughts and Prayers." I'm sure you've read something like this, and it was interesting talking about how prayer, and, and even going back to Demar Hamlin's story, where people just immediately hit their knees and pray. <clears> that there's like a psychological part of that, right? There's a part of us who who really. You know, prayer, it helps us, you know, in this article it talks about. But this article really pushes also not just, oh, it helps us to feel better in a moment, but it's also saying there has to be something more to it. And the only place that I felt like this article lacked was where it was pointing to. That are we praying for the desire of healing or is it pointing to an actual person, a healer? See, when Jairus, this man, comes in verse twenty-one, Jesus had crossed again to the other side, the great crowd about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. Seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, "My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that may be made, she may be made well." And he went with them. Think about this for a moment. Let's put ourselves in Jairus's shoes. And I don't think you need to have children to feel this experience. Anytime we see a child or hear a child or have watched or heard a narrative about a child in a position of pain or suffering or hurt or harm, it provokes us. It should, at least. It provokes our hearts to say, What's going on? The, the need, the tenderness, this desperation. And you can hear it in Jairus' voice. He's a ruler of the synagogue. He knows who Jesus is. And in fact, if he's working in the synagogue, he knows that Jesus is not necessarily always the best character for everyone who else who works in the synagogue. The scribes, Pharisees. But he fought, fell at his feet. Here's a ruler of a synagogue falling at someone who is not a ruler of a synagogue to implore him. You feel his desperation. And even the word, word uh, his words in verse 23, my little daughter, it, he, that addition that Mark puts in there for us to know, he didn't just say, hey, come heal my daughter. My little daughter, the addition of those words in Greek to say, this is my tender, precious girl. the longing for her to be helped and healed. And to be a ruler of a synagogue was somebody who actually arranged the worship services. He presented it for people to come in and to present themselves to God. He was the one who arranged, organized, and planned everything to accordance so that when people came, they worship. And now he finds himself in a way that he cannot plan. He cannot put things in a row. And the very worship he organizes for everyone else is pressed in on by the little girl, his sweet daughter, and the pain that she is in. His worship and his relationship to God is tested and pushed. As Jesus goes with them, he's pushing through a crowd and verse 25. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, came up behind him in the crowd, and touched his garment. For she had said, if I touch even his garment, I will be made well. This woman, as you see, is this kind of in-between moment as Jesus is walking to help Jairus, A woman who's exhausted her resources. Many of you here may have been in a position now or in the past or may be looking down the corridor. Many even are watching online. And we continue to do our online services because many of you watching are dealing with some of these chronic things. Things that we talk about like cancer. Long-term effects of COVID painful things that you've used resource after resource after resource. And medical bill comes in and more money goes out. She's drained not only her resources financially but sure emotionally for for this number of years. 12 years. Many of us in this room may know even for months when we feel ill or feel bad, And we get better and we think, gosh, I'm glad that's over. But some of us have encountered or have loved ones who have or friends who encounter things ongoing. It could be anything from feeling the effects of some disease. It could be anything from consistent issues with infertility. It could be the ongoing onset of any sort of thing that you long and you look to God and you say, is healing even a reality? And this passage isn't to diminish the fact that there are physicians that can help, but for some reason, this woman was not able to be helped. And she comes to Jesus and just believes, if I can just touch his garment, this is an, often a thought with rabbis who would pass through not knowing that she would be completely or fully healed, but if she could touch his garment, she would be made well. It doesn't mean she knew that she would be completely healed, but she would be made well. Things would go her way. She was hoping and praying. But Jesus, with both of these instances, goes with Jairus and stops and doesn't Let this woman leave. She was scared in her story because of her circumstance. Brings her back because it can't be superstition or any sort of faith in him. his robes that would heal her. He brings her back because he wants to bring her story into the reality that it goes beyond her circumstances. There's an interesting passage that I I always go back to in these kind of moments when, I'm pressed with my own infirmities or limitations or others. In Daniel, it's an Old Testament book. There are three characters named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And if you grew up in some sort of reading of the Bible, you can read their names. They kind of they kind of ring off the tongue, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I'm sure many of you might name your children now from that. But in that moment in Daniel, they're they're actually pressed with the worship of a king whose name nebuchadnezzar and they're caught worshiping the lord and as nebuchadnezzar presses on them to say well you 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 have to worship me you can't worship god or you can worship both of us and try and do that to the best of your ability well the answer back is nebuchadnezzar says you either change your minds or i'm going to throw you into this fire And that is one way that they killed people. It was one form of execution. But listen to what they say. You would think, okay, God's just going to save them. This is one of those Old Testament things. Listen to what it says. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, meaning if God doesn't, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And the reason that passage always gets me is because their faith wasn't warranted necessarily on their saving, on God extinguishing a fire or keeping them from being, being burned, which He does in this passage. But their faith is put in the relationship they have with him that they know that whatever Nebuchadnezzar, no matter what this world is putting at them, as painful as it is, as the reality of it is, that their relationship and their view and understanding of who God is is not transferred or translated based on their circumstances. And I'll tell you what, that is one of the most difficult things for me. And I'm sure you feel the same. That our circumstances detail the character of who God is. Rather than the other way around. And one of the things in this passage that I think is so important for us to see. Is that God's healing is a reality. God's healing in his salvation and what he's doing is a reality. But no, remember, these people who were healed then would die later. Who knows how? We don't know how. Because it's a taste of what God's restoration is going to be. He's not leaving them. He's preparing them. And we can be expectant both of maybe his healing now, but that his healing will happen in the future. It is a reality, and nothing can fade it. I want us to think about this with, with even these moments with Jarius and this woman, the, the time amounts. One of the things Mark draws out is not just their circumcision, but their time. When our faith in God's healing is met with time, doesn't it just erode your faith? You think about Jarius, and in the moment here, he's... <laughs> And, and, and just walk with me for a second. You're, you're Jairus, you ask Jesus, you implore him to come, and he says yes. You know what he's been able to do throughout the land. He's following you, and all of a sudden, he turns around and realizes he's not behind him right now. He's stuck in a crowd, and he's distracted now from people touching him, and then someone specifically touching him. What kind of mindset do you think is going through Jairus? Jesus, what, we don't have a record of what he may have said, but we do know that after this distraction, so to speak, and I'm sure in his mind, with this woman who's healed, while he was still speaking, verse 35, your daughter is dead, why trouble the teacher any further? Well, that was the timing. What felt immediate, what felt like needed to happen, and yet, Jesus, why are you, what are you doing you know, this isn't the first instance that Jesus kind of relays his, his delay to go heal somebody. There are multiple times in this passage where Jesus, in, in the Bible, in the New Testament, where Jesus sometimes will take his time. And over and over, you see the impatience. And we, I wish we could read more of it. I know you we're to feel it in this passage. And I know you do too. And again think about this woman the exa- not only exhausted resources but the chronic illness and the word for actually suffering in her pain is the word torment it wasn't that she dealt with it it was a tormented life that she was in and i think what mark wants us to understand about what jesus is getting at and taught him in this passage is teaching is that whether it's an immediate moment or 12 years of suffering, there is not one minute that goes by that is wasted on God's healing in your life. There's not a year, there's not a month, or even a minute that is lost on him in where you are. That's the reality of the Gospels. This is why Jesus is incarnate. This is why The Bible is different than other books. It's describing that God doesn't say, you know what, just pray to me and tell me you're healing and that'll make you feel better or I will try and visit you. He actually says, I'm going to not just have you pray to me. I'm going to actually come and pray for you. And I'm actually going to feel physical death and touch your infirmities. And enter into the suffering so that you know that your suffering, even though you have no idea why it's immediate or 12 years long, is not without hope. And it is not dismissed. And it is not lost in thinking that just some random prayer was going to help it. But that prayers connect to a reality and a real person who enters in. And you know one of the most beautiful parts of these passages? Is that they are actually daughters. And I know that's like, well, okay. But one of the things that Mark wants us to see as is, is he closes this is that these passages pit two things against each other. One, the difference between the crowds and being a daughter or even a son. If you think about it for a minute, it says the crowds were pressing on Jesus And for a moment, you're like, and and this power goes out of him, as it says, into this woman. Who touched my garments? Because he immediately felt the power go out of him. Is this some sort of superhero-like vibe, like some sort of unbreakable, like you just walk by, touch him, and he knows exactly what's going on in your life. Why was it this woman and not all these other people or someone else? Why is her? Her infirmity healed when he's being touched by so many others. Why his back? Is he out of control of it? Is it just random? Or is it the fact that when he brings her back, what means is what her life, both socially and religiously, she was an outcast completely. She was put outside because she was unclean because of her body. For 12 years, she not only just incurred physical infirmity, but social outcast. And also, religiously, was unclean, deemed completely unclean. And what Jesus is doing when he says to her, he says, he brings her back, and don't you know she is fearful? She hides herself because she knows she is uncleaned and touched someone, particularly a rabbi to them, and made him unclean. And yet, what is his response? Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Daughter, you are now no longer an outcast. You are now a daughter. You are brought back in to the community of faith and to who you are before the Lord himself. See, here's the huge demarcation. Healing and what we look to with God is about us being in relationship with him as sons and daughters so that it's not just the, your faith has made you well, so you're okay, but your faith because of where it is in him shows that your relationship is more than just a healing. It's that you're actually a daughter and a son. You're actually in deep relationship with him and actually one another. So that when we do and enter into one another's lives with illness, infirmity, lack, loss, whatever it may be, we're showing the family that we know is going to be the reality when the Lord returns. And Jairus here, and when he finally gets to Jairus' house, it says here in verse 37, and he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, to brother, and the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. By the way, these were considered... Pro-wheeler, weepers, professional weepers that were hired to help with the weeping and grieving. Because what do they do next? Jesus says, she's not dead, but she's sleeping in verse 40. And they laughed at him. Here they are to weep over her and to grieve and looking for hope and to help walk through this issue. And yet what they do when the guy who comes to say, she's not dead, she's asleep, is they laugh. And yet Jesus goes in, and what does he say? And why does Mark do this? Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi," which means little girl, I say to you, arise. It is a tender word. It actually means Talitha kumi" means it's like a pet word saying, honey. I love how the story of Jesus' storybook Bible says it this way. Honey, it's time to get up. And he reached down into death and gently brought the little girl back to life. Do you see what Jesus does with these two daughters? He highlights the fact that they're not just called daughter just to be sweet and sentimental. But the depth of his relationship of going into their life to bring restoration and healing and into the communities far beyond us. C.S. Lewis said it here. He said the true miracles express not a good God, lower G God, but God, that which is outside nature, not as a foreigner, but as her sovereign. They announce not merely that a king has visited our town, but that it is the, the king, our king. Look, like this meal is the taste of that. This meal is the taste of why we have faith. It is a taste, again, it's not the full meal. It's a taste like those healings were, a taste of the kingdom and the real king. It's a taste of what we will live in forever. It's a taste that, that all bad things, all sad things, all death, corrosion, all the stuff that is actually wasting our bodies away will be undone and made untrue. Jesus has done that. You taste the reality, the relevance of his healing. And guess what, when you taste this and you leave, it may not feel like anything or think of anything, but you know that God is actually actively at work in you to heal you right now. To begin the process and continue it until he returns, that you will be made like him. And you leave, you come to this table and you leave this table as a son or a daughter and that's the only way we come. We can't come in any other way because this is a comprehensive healing, physical, spiritual, emotional, every bit you can think of. There's not a place untouched by his hand for you to become his and stay his. Thanks be to God. Let's stand together.